Welcome to Your Future at McGill podcast. Today's guest is a professor from the Department of Psychology, Dr. Signe Sheldon. We talked about many things, among which include Dr. Sheldon's responsibilities as a professor, her coursework, and her own lab, which recruits undergraduate students to help with research. Whether you are interested in psychology or not, getting experience working with profs can be instrumental in discovering your path and developing your interests. We spent some time talking about how undergraduates get involved, and this process will be similar for most McGill professors who work with undergraduate students. On a more personal note, Dr. Sheldon has lived in a few Canadian cities, and we talked about the experience of moving across the country and experiencing what a city has to offer. The Department of Psychology is one of the biggest departments at McGill and finds itself in multiple faculties. At the end of the conversation I have with Dr. Sheldon, I dive into some admission advice for those interested in studying psychology at McGill. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Your Future at McGill podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, and I will allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, hello, my name is Dr. Signe Sheldon, and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at McGill University. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, there, there are a few things that I think are really important to clarify for students who are thinking about McGill, who have been admitted and are coming to join us. And one thing that sometimes can be really confusing for undergraduate students are the titles of their professors. So what is an assistant professor at McGill? What is, what is your role uh, at McGill? That's a very good question. So um, you, you probably have uh, professors who are assistant professors, associate professors, lecturers, and so forth. And yeah, that can be confusing. So an assistant professor is somebody who is uh, in the first six years of their, uh, their academic uh, career. From there, you can get tenure and then you would go on to become uh, an associate professor. And with more promotions, you go up to a full and full professor. Amazing. Um, I, I didn't know that six year thing. So that's actually really cool to know that there's a specific number in mind, um, how those titles work. It's, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, your, your own academic background, where did you sort of travel from? You know, where did you graduate? Where did you do your own academics before finally landing this position at McGill? Okay, so I started off, um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Alberta. So I'm originally from Edmonton. And I started off in physiology. I was really interested in how the body works. And I thought, okay, this sounds really cool. But I found that I was really drawn more towards psychology classes, which was quite a surprise to me. So uh, I was fortunate enough that I was able to follow that. And I worked in some labs in my undergraduate degree and just uh, couldn't get enough of some of the questions that were being asked in psychology. So I did my honors thesis. After that, I took some time off. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, and the time off included working in a psychology lab and then working in a, a psychiatric hospital as well. So my time off, I guess, could be considered time on of my academic uh, career path. So after doing that for um, a year, I then applied to graduate school at University of Toronto and I did my master's in um, speech comprehension with aging and um, I could do memory research, but, so that might seem kind of funky, but uh, I was really interested in aging and language processing. And I thought that that's what I wanted to study in graduate school. So I started off with my master's in, on that topic. And during graduate school, I just um, felt very drawn towards questions about memory processing and 
how the brain supports all these different types of memory, how memory is uh, malleable and subject to distortion. And uh, I was having all these conversations with um, one of the professors who taught a, a course on memory during graduate school. And um, these, uh, they were just so fun. So um, I ended up switching uh, supervisors and switching um, topics for my PhD. So I did my PhD at U of T focusing on uh, memory processing in aging and uh, in the brain. And from there, I did some postdoctoral degrees in a neurosurgery department and then at a geriatric hospital uh, before landing this position at McGill. So, so there's definitely one thing that I got from all that is a lot of education, a lot of experience, uh, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom to get where you are now. And I think yeah. it's sort of, yeah. I, for sure, there's a, it's a lot of time, you know, there's, a, it's many, many years. Looking back at my career path and, or I guess the path that took me to become a professor that is perhaps surprising um, is that it wasn't so planned out. So when I was an undergraduate, my ultimate goal was not to become a professor. My ultimate goal wasn't to study memory using neuroimaging techniques, which is what I do. Uh, it definitely was something that was that changed and evolved. And I think that's something that's important for people to keep in mind who are in the early stages of a path, that things do change. And if you're open to that change, you will find whatever motivates you and will kind of uh, push you along um, uh, the, the path. So definitely very important to be in the present, to be in the now uh, when you can, because things can change. Uh, you might learn to discover new things. You might fall into you know, new fields that you didn't know exist. That's sort of what university is there for as well. Uh, yeah, you, you... absolutely. And I think that's uh, that openness is really important uh, to foster learning and discovery. So you mentioned your own specific area that you've been you know, working in, your, your own personal research in psychology, uh, but being one of the biggest departments at McGill, uh, yeah, this might be a really hard uh, question. If you had to summarize a general understanding of what psychology is for maybe a high school student, not necessarily knowing where they want to go, how would you summarize psychology? Psychology is how we think and how we act. And psychology is... Uh, it's quite a beautiful field because it can be studied at so many levels. So you can study it really at the systems level, like how do cells and neurotransmitters in our brain affect our behaviors and our thoughts and then how we engage with the world. That's one level. You can go up and say, okay, well, how does individual factors like my age and uh, my mood and my emotional state affect the way I think and behave? And then you can go up even higher and say, okay, how does the social environment that I'm in and the way that people interact with me affect my thoughts and behaviors? So you see that psychology asks this general question, but just at many different levels. And what's really great about having a department that asks the same question, but targeted at different levels of specificity is that we can all come together and understand this big question um, from, uh, from all these different aspects. And 
Is there something in your end that, because I think some students in high school, maybe even CJEP, get a taste of psychology at some level, whether it's like that 101 intro to psych kind of course. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very common uh, throughout the world. Is there something that you wish students knew about the program that becomes a really important factor to develop a career in psychology that maybe they don't know about in high school or when they're younger and that they maybe learn about it in undergrad or grad school? And they're like, wait, I did not know that psychology you know, requires this kind of education or this kind of material or subject matter that maybe I thought, you know, maybe they thought wasn't important or they didn't know it existed there? So I suppose one thing to keep in mind when you're considering psychology is that it is a science that relies on the scientific method. And because it relies on the scientific method, it means that it changes. So the theories that we have in place to explain our behaviors and thoughts those change with new uh, experiments and new findings and also new technologies that we can use to uh, study what we're studying. So having an appreciation of, um, of the uh, dynamic nature of psychology is very, very important. There's no right and wrong answer. It's really about an exploration of how things work. I, I appreciate that response because I was kind of going for that because word of mouth, what I've heard around universities is, Sometimes students stumble when that stats part comes into play. You know, compiling those lab reports can be tough for students sometimes. Yeah, so, and I teach an introductory an introduction course to uh, cognition here at McGill. Um, so all students who want to go into psychology have to take my class. And one of the um, something that is that has surprised a lot of the students who uh, come from Sejeb is that. Um, there's no one theory to explain how memory works. There's no one theory to explain how uh, vision works or to explain uh, why, uh, why our attention wanes when, when we're bored. And I think that is, um, that's something that is, you know, can alarm some people, but it also is um, a critical aspect of science, is science really is a process rather than an end goal. And that is what you will learn about in uh, if you uh, if you take psychology and if you want to go forward in psychology. So, so you mentioned one course that you teach. I was curious, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the list is too long, but you know, what are some of the courses that you are uh, the professor for? And is there one that you know is your personal favorite that you really like to teach every semester, once every year? Right. So um, in the Department of Psychology, a lot of us professors, uh, we teach a limited number of courses because we focus a lot on the research that we conduct in our labs. So I'll say I conduct research, uh, again, that focuses on memory. And within my lab, I uh, have a lot of undergraduate students who uh, assist in research and they uh, conduct research in my lab, which is fantastic. The courses that I teach, I teach Psych 213, which is uh, Introduction to Cognition. So this is a course that reviews um, how we think about thinking, essentially. So in this course, I teach students foundational knowledge about uh, perception, attention, memory, problem solving, and all the techniques that we might use to study how, um, how our mind works and also how our brain works. So that course to me is, um, I teach that course. Um, I also teach a seminar course for undergraduates who are in the honors program. And in that course, we go through the ethical issues related to psychology. 
both in terms of research ethics and uh, ethical issues that can come up in the clinic. So I, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go up. Uh, I was just gonna ask, I think the syllabus might be really different in both those courses, but what are they typically like when you design your syllabi? Oh, okay, so one of the things I have to keep in mind is who is taking the class. So for the large class that I take, Cognition, that has about 700 students who are enrolled in it. And I have to keep in mind that there is a wide variety of, uh, of interest in the course. There's a wide variety of uh, reasons for people taking that course. And there's a lot of people who are coming with different levels of knowledge. So my goal in that course is to really motivate students to figure out what they want to learn about cognition and also help them uh, understand the basics, the basic knowledge and the basic ways of thinking about psychology to help them succeed in, uh, in university. And the higher level, by the, in the seminar course with that one, I try to focus on uh, developing the skills of the undergraduate students who want to, who are just about to finish their degree. So at that point, we're going to work on um, presentation skills and critical thinking skills and a lot more um, self-guided learning because those are the tools that are gonna really help them succeed if they choose to go on into graduate school or professional schools. One thing I've definitely seen are the poster presentations is a very big thing in psychology and departments of psychology. So yeah, so getting mm -hmm. those skills, definitely important. Um, so yeah. are, are those classes more like, or maybe more of the cognition class, is that more of like a midterm and final? Are there little assignments that exist for students or how does that work? Yeah, so the uh, the assessment in these courses is wildly different and the assessment in courses has changed quite a bit with uh, moving online for this year. For the, uh, for cognition, the larger lecture course, the assessment is midterm and finals. And I try to offer some opportunity for students to engage with the material if they want. So for example, this semester I taught cognition and we had readings where students got the opportunity to read primary research articles related to whatever topic we were talking about. So they would read an article, let's say about uh, how visual perception works and how it might interact with, uh, with other processes in our, in our brains. So they would read these primary research articles and then if they wanted to, they could submit a thought question. So any question that came up as they were reading that article. And if they did that enough times, I would give them a bonus, uh, bonus mark for the course. So that's to try to uh, help students just start to learn how to think about what they're reading at um, in a different way. So rather than trying to just simply memorize facts and so forth, which is important, um, getting them used to working with the knowledge that they're, uh, that they're gaining. In the higher level course, in the seminar course, uh, midterms and finals, uh, we don't use those. Uh, in that course, it's much more, um, the learning is assessed by presentations and written commentary. So again, now students in their final year of undergraduate, they have that foundational knowledge. So now we wanna teach them how to work with that knowledge and think their own thoughts. Would you say that that's a common thing? Like, I know I don't want you to speak for every professor in the department, as I said, it's a big department. Is that kind of common where the, maybe the first two years of courses are more based on like, you know, tests, exams, and then as you progress, it becomes a bit more of the 
you know, different material, different types of assessments? Absolutely. You know, when you're starting off in university, uh, you have to you have to gain that knowledge, that foundational knowledge, so that you can then work with that knowledge. So definitely the first and second year courses are going to be more midterm and final based. They're going to be more about assessing your uh, ability to soak up what you're learning. And then in the later years, you'll get that opportunity to be able to work with that knowledge a little bit more. So then the presentations, or sorry, then the classes become smaller, the assessments become a bit more, uh, um, a bit more about critical thinking skills. And you kind of mentioned this, and I've been asking students this, but I think it's important, one, to humanize professors uh, and our staff. Um, so you talked about the transition this past year. Do you have any positive, negative experiences of what it was like to transition from you know, in-class learning to remote learning for this past year? Yeah, the transition to online learning was, um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was a challenge. I know it was a challenge for the students um, and I'll say on the part of the professors, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, the challenges were one in assessment. So now with assessing students, we can't assess uh, just your ability to memorize facts because a lot of the assessments, they're online, they're gonna be open book. So I know that was a lot of, that was a challenge for the students to, so that was one challenge is to design assessments that were fair and also um, we're able to, to um, test applied knowledge rather than just facts. So the assessments became a little, uh, they became difficult. Um, the other challenge I think was not having the feedback from the students. So usually when I lecture, uh, in cognition, I'm teaching 700 students and there's a lot of energy as a professor that you get from people in your class. And that is wonderful. You know, you really understand what the students are getting and what they're not getting. So then you can, you know, you can change your lecture style to fit with the class that you're teaching. Um, students have the opportunity to ask questions during the lectures. So, you know, if they're not getting something, they're like, hey, I don't understand what you're saying. So you can answer right away. But now with the lectures being delivered online and recorded, that opportunity isn't immediate. So that, that is definitely a challenge. One surprising element of moving online that, uh, well, one surprising element was I found that it became a bit more personable. So I'm at my own home, um, you know, my dog wanders in the background as I lecture. And I, 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 I think that's a bit, that's nice. So this, I think the students uh, got an opportunity, I think, to see professors more as humans, that we aren't just cardboard cutouts behind podiums. That's, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think, so looking at how students come and interact with you, um, one thing, and we get this a lot, I think, from students who are thinking about coming to McGill is the relationship with professors and how do they interact. What are office hours like for you? We can think of this both as what it was like when you were on campus and both remote. You know, do students come and chat with you? Do you wish they would come to chat with you more? Um, you know, what is that interaction like? Yeah, I love when students come and talk to me about the course material any questions they have related to what they're learning, I think it's wonderful. That's, uh, I think something to keep in mind as a student is that the professors are, 
they're teaching you what they love. So they are more than willing to talk to you about the course and the content. For me, um, I what I tried to do is make myself self available both before and after lectures. So I would come to the lecture as early as possible, and I would stay for you know about half an hour after. This is in person, and um, just be free for students to ask questions um, if they were uh, not comfortable asking them in the in the classroom. And to me, that's it's been really it's such a great opportunity. Students will ask such insightful questions, um, both about, you know, the material that they learned, but about something else. So um, moving online, what I've done is I have remote office hours, and then I have a question and answer session, Zoom session, where students can come and ask any question that they want. And that has been uh, really successful. Um, again, I think the students do come to visit me at my office hours and they do come with uh, really insightful comments and questions. So one thing I've definitely pushed is to, you know, especially if they want to go speak with a professor, is find some of their publications, maybe read something or read a little bit of something and have a question about that. Like it shows a lot of initiative and interest. Do you see through that as a professor? But even if you do, do you appreciate no. that they're taking that time? I, I think that's really nice. So I, uh, I appreciate that uh, 100%. So if a student who's in my class just wants to come and talk to me about cognition or memory, I'm fine with that. I had a student come up and uh, want to talk to me just about Sherlock Holmes's memory. And that's fun. So um, if they wanted to talk about my particular research in my lab, um, then it's really nice if they say, okay, I read this article that you just put out or that you put out a year ago. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? And I think that's great. So don't be scared of your professors. And I don't think that you need to have, you know, the next, uh, the next big discovery in, uh, you know, this area of psychology to bring to your professor. Keep in mind that your professors do know that you're students and that you're there to learn. And that is, uh, it is okay not to know something and it's okay not to have, you know, the, the answers to whatever, um, whatever questions are out there. Definitely sound advice. Uh, and, and so you mentioned this about the lab and I, I really wanna spend some time on this because I think as psychology students and you've Kind of described your own path to get to where you are now that you had to participate you had to volunteer you had to work uh, in these places so if a student we'll think of undergrad students we'll start with them um, and we'll talk yeah. about i think the graduate experience as well if a student is interested in participating in your lab what's the process like for them how do they do that for an undergraduate student who wants to get involved in research um so i'll talk about my lab um the best way to start out is by volunteering you know, I, I know a lot of students want to dive right in and say, okay, I want to do a research project, let me go. Um, but I think the best uh, thing to do is to reach out to, I, you know, students will reach out to me by email and say that they're interested in volunteering. And, um, you know, they will start doing, um, you know, some basic uh, assistance in the lab for a couple of hours. And from there, if it's something that they enjoy, then we'll, um, will kind of move up and up and up. So maybe they'll be involved more in a course project, in a 
in a research project that we're doing in the lab, maybe they will uh, do a research course in my lab. And um, that has been uh, the way that a lot of students have uh, contributed to my research. And I've had a lot of amazing undergraduate students who've been in my lab for years in that capacity. Um, the reason that I suggest that undergraduates who are just starting out um, begin with volunteering in a lab is for your sake as well. So you wanna make sure that you actually like research and you've liked the lab environment. It's quite different than what people expect. Research is a very creative process, but it's also a very slow process. So it's not the case that people have ideas. They're like, I have an idea, I'm gonna go test it. And a week later you have this, these beautiful images of brains uh, with fun colors saying, oh, look how memory works. Um, research takes years, uh, many years, and there is no clear path. So that's something that's important to make sure that you like. And the best way to do that is to volunteer and observe that in a lab. Now, with that being said, a student who wants to get experience in research, um, you, I think that you want to um, be a little flexible in terms of what lab you would volunteer in. So you, again, the goal would be to make sure that you like research and what you like about research before really focusing on, this is the content, this is the question I must study. So um, that's the advice that I would give. Volunteer, make sure that uh, research is um, something that you are interested in and that you're okay with how it works. And then after that, after you've gained some experience, you can start to figure out, well, maybe there's a particular area in psychology that I want to work in. And then you can sort of gear your, uh, gear your academic path towards that. Is there, do, do you review the students who like maybe kind of apply as a volunteer? Like what stage of, what stage in their undergrad are they at? Is there something that you kind of, you know, do you recommend that they do a year of study, you know, two years, whatever that may be? Is there sort of a timeline for them? So to recruit undergraduate students for my lab, one of the uh, factors I look for is that they've taken some of the foundational courses in psychology. So that's important for me uh, to ensure that they have the basic knowledge. Um, two, uh, I review all of the applications and I try to meet with as many students as possible. And um, really the key for me is uh, to find somebody who is uh, inquisitive, enthusiastic and um, just ready to learn. That's what's, uh, that's what's important. And um, with that, then we can, the students will stay in my lab and uh, for as long as they like. Typically students will, undergraduate students will come into my lab around uh, their, after their first or second year. And um, many do will end up doing honors projects in my lab or research projects in my lab. So one thing I didn't hear you mention, and this is a big thing when it comes to us for in the enrollment part, the enrollment piece of this, is the program that a student is in. So psychology is offered both in the Faculty of Arts and in the Faculty of Science. There's also yeah. a bit of overlap with the cognitive, cognitive science program and the, the Bachelor of Arts and Science. Do you look at that part when the student is applying or speaking to you? No. So in terms of psychology, the arts or science, um, that is, that's not something that, uh, 
that I pay attention to. That's great to hear. That helps us for yeah. our own job. And I will just let the listeners know at the end of this, I will sort of give the recruitment advice when it comes to psychology and applying to psychology for our students. So, so starting as a volunteer, uh, I was just curious because I know, and we talk a lot about this again at our own presentations about research grants, research awards that exist through the university and national uh, uh, scholarships as well, like NSERC and things like that. Um, are, what, are there eventually funding opportunities for students in your lab at some point, or is that maybe more for graduate students and beyond? No, um, so there are definitely opportunities for um, fellowships for undergraduate students in my lab. And for example, this summer, I have three students who've been awarded uh, fellowships, both at the institutional and federal level to conduct research in my lab, three undergraduate students. The, st the students who do get fellowships in my lab are students who've been in my lab already. And uh, so they've conducted research or volunteered in, in my lab for um, a certain amount of time and then will together put together a fellowship application for uh, either one within the department or NSERC um, and other, other outlets. And I think that can kind of, and I, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about the grad school component. Maybe, I know you said, you know, your, your first piece of advice was one step at a time. You don't have to rush into the next stage. But if a student is thinking about that and, you know, or they, they've got to their last year of psychology, they're perhaps working in your lab or volunteering and they're thinking about grad school, what's that sort of process like with you? If they were to come to you and say, hey, I'm thinking of doing a grad degree, I would like to still work in this lab, what does that look like? Do you mean if they want to do graduate school in my lab? Yeah, like if, is there a part where, you know, like they, they should reach out to you first, or is it more just apply to the program and they mention your name? How, like, are you involved with their application? Oh, Do you help yeah, them? so that's funny. I just did a, a presentation for the, um, the undergraduate society in psychology about how to get into graduate school. Okay. So for students, undergraduate students, you know, who are coming to the end of the degree, if they're applying to graduate school, it is important to think about who you would want to uh, work under in, uh, in the universities that you're applying to. So if I had an undergraduate student in my lab, uh, and I do, uh, they all come to me and they ask me about graduate school. So uh, they'll ask me about graduate school either at McGill University or to help them um, figure out what other universities would be good fits for them. And when you're applying to graduate school, what's really, really important is letters of recommendation. And those are going to, uh, that's gonna be important for you to, um, to get as an undergraduate student. So a letter of recommendation is going to come from a professor who knows you and can speak to your skills that you've acquired in undergraduate that you can then apply to as a graduate student. Typically that's gonna be somebody who, um, who has supervised you in some capacity in a research lab. And that's why it's important to get that research experience early on. The students who've worked in my lab who want to continue on to do graduate uh, work in, in, my, uh, in my lab, that's, I do have a graduate student who was a research assistant in my lab. So he worked in my lab for two years before uh, deciding to do graduate, his graduate degree. Um, but most of the students will go off to another lab. And I think that's really important because they've learned from me already and then they can go learn from uh, somebody else. 
Uh, and I know you kind of already mentioned your own specific area, but maybe just to plug it a bit more, mm -hmm. you know, if you had to talk about your lab, how do you promote your lab uh, in a, I understand it could be very lengthy uh, promotion, but mm -hmm. if you had to summarize it, what would you say? What, what kind of research do you do? So my laboratory looks at the cognitive neuroscience of memory. Here we study the individual differences in the way that people remember the past and how the same processes we use to remember the past, we can use to uh, imagine the future, solve problems and plan. So what are the functions for memory? This, uh, in my lab, we use a bunch of different tools and technology to try to understand the process of memory. So we use uh, brain imaging techniques. Uh, we study uh, people who have uh, memory problems. And we also try to study how uh, memory is affected by mood and emotion and changes with age. Very interesting. And I, and I will promote your own personal, uh, your, your, your resources, uh, your, your research experience on the uh, description as well. So if you want to, if any listener wants to continue reading or learn a little bit more, uh, the information will be there. Uh, and especially with the website to your lab, which is a really good website. Um, it's, I'm saying that because sometimes websites can be terrible, uh, but yours is very nice. Uh, and you kind of spoiled this, but I think it's okay. The cog dog does your dog come to the lab from time to time? Is there, pet, is there pet therapy that takes place or? No, the cog dog is uh, the mascot. She's the course mascot for cognition. So every class that uh, a student comes to in cognition starts with a photo of the cog dog who will deliver a quote or a saying about the material they're about to learn. So she's there to provide uh, to provide comfort and question about about cognition, nice. and she's been around for for this. She's taken cognition for five years, so she she knows what she's talking about. She's got a few degrees. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for students. So we have you know types of individuals who might be listening to this, whether they're younger, prospective for future years, or starting in fall twenty twenty one for whichever group. What would be, and I know you've already given a lot of good advice already, is there anything else that you'd want to share with students who are starting soon at McGill? And could be any field, but in general, general advice, because deep down, we are all kind of counselors in some way. So like, yeah. you know, what would you share with someone? Okay, for students starting out, I uh, suggest that they keep in mind that they are there at university to learn and that learning is, um, is a creative process. So be open to discovery, be open to change, and uh, don't be so hard on yourself. The second piece of advice I would uh, give is reach out. So learning and university is, it's a team sport. So reach out both to your professors, reach out to your students, don't do it alone. It's much more fun and much more effective if you uh, participate, even if it feels uncomfortable. Just get out there. It's gonna help you with your degree. It's gonna help you with your life satisfaction. And um, with that being said, don't be afraid of your professors. We are here to help. We're here to teach. And we, we love to learn and we love to learn from students and we love to, um, talk about what we're teaching. And on that note, so well, just a few final questions um, that I would like to go over. It could be the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and we might dig a little deeper in the second one that I have, 
But as a professor, what's your favorite thing about McGill? This might sound a little ridiculous. It's the students. Um, teaching at McGill has been such a wonderful opportunity. And um, I am surprised every year by how inquisitive the students are. Um, I learn from the questions that students ask from the different ways that they can see the topics that I teach them. So for me, that's been uh, my favorite thing about being at McGill is interacting with the students and learning from the students. And lastly, and I think I'm really interested in this is why I think I'll have a few follow ups, if at least one. Um, your experience with Montreal. So is there, you know, Montreal is a selling point for a lot of students. We like to talk about mm -hmm. the city being really student friendly for yourself. Uh, what's your favorite thing about Montreal? Um, I think, okay, so I, I came from Toronto, <laughs> you don't have to use this. I came from Toronto and I lived in Toronto for many years. And when I was moving to Montreal, um, a woman who worked at the geriatric hospital I was postdocing at, she said to me, she said, oh, you're moving to Montreal. And I said, yes. She said, well, you know, uh, in Toronto people, you know, they live for Monday morning but in uh, Montreal, they live for Friday night. And <laughs> I've always kept the, you know, that's a something that comes up to me when I think about Montreal. Montreal is a very accepting city. And that's something that um, has really um, allowed me to fall in love with it. It's a very accepting city and it's um, a place that um, lets you be who you are. So that is, uh, probably my favorite thing about Montreal. I think the other thing that, you know, more, um, the other things that I really love about Montreal is the green space. There's a lot of parks. There's a lot of great uh, restaurants to go to. So you have this wonderful university to study and learn from, but then you have this, the, this city where you can also study and learn from, but just outside of the academic institute. So the, if it's okay, I would like to keep this part in because, and, and you kind of mentioned, we, we talked about you living in three different provinces, you know, minimal, and there might be more. Um, mm -hmm. So you've had this experience of just traveling across Canada, living in different areas. So that's kind of why I wanted that, you know, your honest uh, opinion uh, of the city. And I think there are a lot of great cities in Canada, of course. Uh, we're not here to, you know, it's, it's not a lose-lose situation. Um, we're happy to encourage. It's all about finding your fit. And so Montreal can yeah. definitely be that fit for many people. Do you feel like you've enjoyed the chance of living in so many different cities in Canada? I, I really have. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to uh, find a job in a city that I feel at home at. You know, one of the things that makes Montreal feel um, very accepting, I think, is that it is a very uh, diverse and dynamic city. So I'm, uh, again, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to live in different cities within Canada too, so I can appreciate what each of them have. And I want to follow up with one thing. You, you mentioned this earlier um, about encouraging students to learn from somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I had this conversation, there's another episode that's coming out on this day um, where I spoke with a faculty lecturer who kind of mentioned this as well, this idea of maybe having a rule or this Sort of guideline that you should study at different schools throughout your you know postgraduate life um you know throughout your your post-secondary education um is this something that you really push for or is it more if you happen to find the researcher that you want to work with you know stick in that school or do you like where do you land on that 
conversation? I think that is, uh, it, it's, there's no hard and fast rule, of course. I think it's up to the student and perhaps the supervisor to look within and see what is the reason for uh, wanting to stay at a particular institution. So if somebody did their undergrad degree at, uh, you know, University of, of X, whatever, let's say they did their undergrad degree, let's be a bit more uh, concrete at McGill. And then they say, well, I really want to stay at McGill because I don't want to go anywhere else because I don't know anywhere else. And uh, this is where I know. And so I'm going to stay here. If that's why you're doing it, then you might want to consider um, assessing that, uh, that reason. So if you're staying at the institution because you're comfortable, then um, that's not going to help you with learning. I think learning has a little bit of discomfort that comes with it. So uh, in that situation, I think it's really important for, us, uh, for that person's education to reach out. However, if a student is staying at McGill because um, they've really just like gone deep into a research question and they've found what they're really passionate for and they found a really good fit with the supervisor, then that to me is, that's beautiful. So it's, it's nice to know that I think the two uh, staff members who are uh, in the episodes that are coming out today, that you both kind of had the same answer. It's really case by case, dig a little deeper, find the right information. So I'm glad that we're all kind of on the same wavelength when it comes to that. Uh, so that's, that's all I have. Uh, I think, you know, we learned a lot about the lab experience, um, your own uh, sort of path to get to where you are now and how it's like, what it's like to work with undergraduate students. So I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to teach us to, to provide a lot of great advice for future students. Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sheldon. As promised, I want to provide some admission information related to psychology. When applying to McGill, you apply directly to faculties, not a program like a psychology major, in most cases, there are some exceptions to that rule. Psychology is an available major in both the Faculty of Arts and the Faculty of Science. When a prospective student tells me that they are interested in psychology, I make sure to tell them to take advantage of this fact. In one's application, they can apply to both faculties separately and have double the chance at studying something that they enjoy. The best part is, is that the programs are almost identical if you take the right courses. In the Faculty of Science, psychology is a 54 credit program. In the Faculty of Arts, psychology is 36 credits, but if you add the minor in behavioral science, that adds the 18 missing credits. So you get the same total amount of coursework in psychology as you do in the Faculty of Science. This is important to know if you are considering graduate school in psychology. Another piece of advice, if you are studying psychology, especially in the Faculty of Arts, is to speak with advisors to make sure that among the large choice of psych courses available, that you take the ones required for graduate school. Why do I mention this? Well, both faculties have different cutoffs, academically speaking, and both have different prerequisites. So depending on your high school and CSHIP courses and the grades that you have, you may be thankful that you have two options to study psychology. Take a look at the links in the description to see those prerequisites and cutoffs from previous years. If ever you have any questions, find us at one of our events and we'll be happy to provide more information. Thanks.